The following audio is from Sacred City Church. For more information, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Welcome to Sacred City Church. Uh, My name is Justin. I want to thank you for gathering with us this morning. This is a small fraction of who we are as a church, but um, it is an important fraction. We, We thoroughly enjoy worshiping God together as a family, sitting under the liturgy, inside the liturgy, and also under the authority of God's word. So... Um, I'm going to go ahead and pray for us this morning. We're going to jump right in. Father, I do thank you for the opportunity to once again come under the authority of your word. To once again study the eternal word that was given to us from your lips through the lives of your men. I ask today that this word that I know is eternally alive and active and it's sharper than any two-edged sword, I ask that this word would be preached with boldness, would be preached with clarity, that you would think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords, that you would anoint the ears of those here today um, to hear, anoint their minds to think clearly and deeply and, and not wander to the laundry list of things that we have to do at home. Father, and I pray that you would ignite hearts ablaze for your sovereignty, for your glory, for your goodness, for you. I pray that we all would be encouraged, that we would be stirred up, that we would be motivated, that we would be inspired, that the gospel would penetrate dead, dry, dying hearts and make them new and make them living and make them alive again. Only you can do such a thing and we We ask that your spirit would breathe life into this, your people, through your word today. All of you and none of me, in Jesus' name, amen. So, welcome to Sacred City Church. If you are just joining us, we're going to be, we are going verse by verse through the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, and this is our 15th week studying together through this book. Now, I've been having a blast I don't know about you, but, uh, and I, I don't plan on today to be any different, all right? I think Genesis 14, which is where we are today, is one of the most interesting stories in the whole book, maybe the whole Bible. Now, some of you have heard me say that over and over and over, and I just, that's how it is every week. It's the most interesting story, but I truly, really, I, I really believe this. I believe it all every time I say it, but something is unique. Now, Bible nerds unite, okay? That's, I'm calling all... Bible nerds, future Bible geeks to unite around the scripture today because something very unique is going to take place. All right. It is, um, I'm just gonna say it's, it's really exciting. And as much as I would like to go into great detail on the first half of this chapter, we are going to cover a whole chapter today. Um, the first part is really just context that is setting up a supernatural encounter with Jesus. It's a battle that leads to a blessing. So we're going to jump right in Genesis 14. If you have your Bible turned there, if you have an, an, uh, a smartphone, you can go to the YouVersion app, right on the YouVersion app. There's a, the live events, Sacred City Church. You can follow along right there. Or if you've just got a regular Bible app, we're going to be in Genesis 14. We've got a few Bibles left up sitting on a stool back there. Um, that you can pick up one of those. You can also, I think, get it through our Sacred City. Uh, we have a smartphone app, just Sacred City Church. So we're going to jump in that. We're going to start at Genesis 14. And um, I'm just going to let you know, Sam and I had quite the, uh, 
disagreement over the first half of this book this week. I swear it reads like a chapter out of Lord of the Rings, and he believes it to be uh, discounted and discarded Pokemon names. So (laughs) it was quite the disagreement we had, but you can make your own decision as to the names in this first half, and I'm going to read them with boldness like I know what I'm talking about. Verse, chapter 14, verse 1. So let me just start and tell you this, okay? This is going to be really confusing and really difficult to read, but let's read it and then I will simplify it, okay? So I'm just letting you know it's going to be difficult. You're going to read it. This, you would skip over this when you're reading in your Bible. You know you would skim this and skip over this and, and be really confused by it. But we're going to talk about it. I'm going to go through it kind of quick. Here we go. <sighs> In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Chedolamer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goem, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom. Okay, we know that one, right? King of Sodom. Remember that from last week. Bersha, king of Gomorrah. We've heard that one before too. Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these, here we go, all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the salt sea, or in the dead sea. Twelve years they had served Shedolamer. I swear he's a necromancer, but I'm not going to go there. But in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Chedolamer and the kings, look, who were with him, they came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth, Karnam, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Sheva, Kiriathame, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir as far as El Paran on the borders of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who are dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Siddim with Shedolamor, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goem, Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariot, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits, tar pits, and as the king of Kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. Okay, here we go, right? I promised you, I hope I delivered right there. Thoroughly confused, have no idea what's going on. I mean, those are goblin names, correct? Like those are not normal names for our minds to to gather. So let me simplify what's going on here. This is the first account of war in the Bible. It happens in modern-day Iraq. Coincidence. There's kind of stuff been happening there for a long time. Listen, here's what happens. Four kings rebel and rise up against the five kings that have the home court advantage. Okay? Five kings, including the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah. There are two of them. They're the home court And there's four invading kings that have been kind of under their rule for 12 years. Now they get tired of it and they're like, hey, 
let's, we're four against five, but let's rise up and let's go take over their land and take all their stuff. Like, let's just take over here. Okay, so four kings versus five. So one of the five kings with the home field advantage is the king of Sodom. Remember that place from last week, right? Sodom was a place full of wickedness and sin, is what the Bible says. It was a wicked place, but kind of like Alabama last week, home field advantage doesn't really matter much here, okay? Should throw that out there. Um, The four invading kings, the four invading kings overpower the five local kings, all right? We're getting this. Four invading outsiders come in, even though they're on home court advantage, home field advantage, the five kings get defeated. All right? The four invading kings kick some butt, take some names, and go home with their stuff and their women. Okay? Bad news. All right? Now, look what happens. So, do we get this? Right? Now, this is a funny thing. War is taking place. We have no mention of God right here. War's taking place. Kings are invading, taking over land, taking women, taking possessions. We have no mention of God here. It's almost as if this is an outsider's view. Just, yeah, this stuff's going on out here. There's war going on. There's bad stuff going on out here. But what does it have to do with Abraham or Abram at this moment? What does that have to do with the people of God? What does that have to do with the covenant? What does it have to do with God's chosen people? He's going to renew and, and redeem and bring redemption through all the world. What's it got to do with us? This is four kings versus five kings. What's the point? Well, there's a little detail we're about to find out in verse 12. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. All right? So here we go. Key point. They took Lot. They took Lot. Now, can you remember from last week, where was Lot? Where was Lot living last week? Outside the city of Sodom, if you remember that. He was living outside the city of Sodom. He was dwelling in his tent just outside the city. Now, where is he? In the city. Smack dab in the city. Things are just not going well for this guy, Lot. Lot is digressing. He's traveling deeper and deeper into sin. If you remember from last week, first he chose the land of Sodom. Given his choice, he chose the land of Sodom. And then he moved his family right outside the city. And now we find the boy dwelling inside the city of wickedness, the city of Sodom. This is a picture of a human being's descent and digression into sin. First, you start fantasizing about it. I wonder what if. Then you get up close to it, do some research on it. And before long, you end up smack dab in the middle of it. And what happens to Lot here? What happens to Lot? He gets captured and carried off by the four invading kings and their armies. Again, we see a picture here that sin brings judgment. It brings chaos. It, it, it breeds destruction. James 1.14 says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. 
sin wants to destroy us. Sin wants to bring chaos into our life. Sin kills. That's what it does. Promises everything, delivers nothing but death. Sin left unchecked and unrepented will eventually kill you. Sin kills relationships. Sin kills joy. Sin kills peace. Sin kills happiness. It kills families. And if left unchecked and unrepented, it will kill your soul for eternity. So foolish Lot has descended into his sin and he winds up captured and carried off by the invading armies. Let's see what happens next. Verse 13. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew. First time he's called the Hebrew here. Called Abram the Hebrew who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshel and Aner. These were the allies of Abram. Okay, more than likely, this is someone from Lot's household. He busts it in hightails, right? He runs, he escapes, he goes back to who he knows, he goes back to Abram. They come back to get Uncle Abe. Uncle Abe, we need your help. Now, what's a guy to do in this situation? Just think about it. Your foolish nephew tried to get one over on you, tried to get one up on you, chose what he thought was the best land, separated himself from Abraham last week, went to live outside of Sodom, and now the guy's in trouble. Surprise, surprise. What's Uncle Abe supposed to do in this situation, right? Lot has made his bed, now he can sleep in it. That's what you get, Lot. That's what happens for continuing in your sin. See, last week, if you remember, we saw Abraham display uh, a godly and a gospel-centered passive faith. He took his hands off. That's passive faith. He took his hands off and he trusted his soul to his faithful creator. He trusted God's sovereign plan and God's providential direction. He trusted God. So he took his hands off last week, if you remember, and he didn't claim the best rights of the land. He let his boy Lot, his nephew Lot, take the first choice. He took his hands off and said, God is in control. God is sovereign. I will trust that he will work this relational strife out between me and Lot. And he'll take care of me and my family and the promise that he's given me. Passive faith. Many times that's that's what obedience to God looks like for us. Passive faith. Take your hands off. Rest. This is the point of, part of the point of a Sabbath Every week we step back from our work and say, I am not God. I cannot finish my work. I can never check all the things off my to-do list. Today I'm going to trust my work to a faithful creator. I'm going to trust my soul. I'm going to give it up to a God who always completes what he wants to complete. And I'm going to rest. It's passive faith. But how does Abram respond here? Verse 14. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Whoa. Okay, so building off of last week, we see that the gospel continues to shape Abram's heart. We saw Abram repent and return to the place he was supposed to be last week. 
And now our boy Abram is still there. He's still by the oaks of Mamre. He's still worshiping God in the promised land where he's supposed to be. He stayed put. That's good. Abram is staying planted where he's supposed to be. He's not chasing something new and fanciful. Then we saw Abram give Lot dibs on the best land. And now we see Abram escalate his commitment by risking his life and limb to go on a rescue mission. So last week we saw Abram respond in a passive faith. This week we see Abram respond in an active faith. I want you to see this. Last week, Abram's faith was displayed by being passive and trusting God to work things out. This week, Abram is displaying his faith by being active and heading off to war. He doesn't say, Lot, oh, that stupid kid. Let him reap what he sows. That'll teach him. Let him get a taste of his own medicine. Abram puts everything on the line to go rescue his foolish, sinful nephew Lot. Abram takes 318 of his trained men. I told you that Abram was rolling deep. He's got a killer entourage here. He takes them he takes off on this 100-mile, 3-week journey to rescue his nephew Lot. I had them read Psalm 149 in the call to worship today. It's a it's it's a, a crazy um Psalm, because it starts off with just high praise, right? It's all about singing. It's all about worshiping. It's all about glorifying God. And then in verse 6, it makes this wicked change. Verse 6 is uh, one of my favorite verses in, in all of the Bible. It says, let the high praises of God be in their throats and a two-edged sword in their hands. See, there's, there's something about our faith that sometimes demands active obedience. It's a faith that fights. Paul likes that metaphor in the New Testament of a faith that fights, that we beat our flesh, that we put it under subjugation and, and we make it submit to the Spirit. We submit to the Word of God. That sometimes we respond passively by trusting God and sometimes we respond actively and trust God and get to work and go to war. Sometimes it's time to sing praises and sometimes we need to swing a sword. So here Abram takes his men and he goes off to war. Sometimes our faith keeps us at home and sometimes our faith sends us out on mission. Abram leaves the wife, the no kids yet, leaves the wife at home. They go off to war. This is why for some people, you know, a lot of us, I always say that we're born little legalists. We're born loving lists. We're born just tell me what to do and I'll do it. Give me the right answer. Just give me the right answer. We want to be spoon fed everything. Our educational system today very often teaches us what to think and not how to think. We don't know how to process and we don't know how to, we don't know how to wrestle through uh, logic anymore. Many of us don't. We just want to be spoon-fed everything. You can't be spoon-fed Christianity because, listen, this is showing us sometimes our faith demands us to remain passive. 
Sometimes our faith demands us to be active and go to war and go out and make things happen. Trust God. This is why it's so important for us to understand that being a Christian, living the Christian life, is an active, living faith. Living faith. A relationship with God that is vibrant and active, where you can hear His voice and you know how to obey Him. Sometimes that's going to look like us trusting Him through passive faith, and sometimes that will be active. You can't, there's no manual for this. You've got to hear his voice and be able to discern the right course of action. It's also another reason why we live together in community. So we can bounce off. I think God is leading me to do this. And we can bounce it off our community and our community can push back. I know that's anti-American autonomous thinking. I know it's anti our culture. But this is one of the reasons biblically that we surround ourselves with community. In the New Testament, the apostles would say, this seems right to the Holy Spirit and to us. They'd bring things before them. This seems right to the Holy Spirit and to us. That's how we make decisions in community, on mission. There is no manual. Just give me the list. If you know anything about the old, the list is coming. We don't do well with lists. Look at verse 15. Abram then divided his forces. So he chased him a hundred mile, three week journey and he divided his forces against them by night. Okay, stop. So four kings invade five kings, right? They take all the possessions. So they, they overrun these five kingdoms. They take all the possessions off. With them, they take this boy Lot, right? Big mistake in taking Lot. Now it sucks Abram into the battle. Sucks. Now Abram's got a, a, an iron in the fire. Now Abram says, oh, you're taking my boy. Okay, I, I'm, I have a relationship with him. I have a commitment and a covenant with him. I'm going after him. So we have Abram and his household, these 318 men, and maybe a couple of alliances, going after, pursuing the four victorious kings. All right? Oh, Uncle Abe. Oh, Father Abraham, on his horse, probably 75 years old. I don't know what he's, you know, he's an old boy, ready to go swing a sword. All right. Now listen, this is what happens. He divides up his forces. He goes at night, he and his servants, and they defeated them and pursued them. So that I love this man. He sends them on their way and then he chases them down. North of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. So Abram goes on a rescue mission and kicks butt and takes names. All right? He makes it happen. Hebrews 7.1 says that Abram slaughtered them. He kills the invading kings. And he rescues Lot. And he also brings back all the possessions that the kings had raided. So once again, here we are, Abram gets rich again. And we know that, that he has a tendency, we've seen from the past, he has a tendency to be tripped up by wealth and prosperity and comfort. Let's see what happens this time. This is, I'm just going to tell you, this is where it gets good. This is where it gets good. Verse 17. After his return from the, de- the defeat of Shedolamer, and the kings who were with him, 
the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheba, which is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, blessed be Abraham by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave a tenth of everything. Okay, here we go. We've got two kings. Abram comes back, comes back victorious, loaded with bounty, right? Loaded with booty, right? He's, that's just what you call it, right? He, he's, got, he, he's, he's got a lot of stuff. He comes back and two kings come out to meet him. Two kings come out to meet him. The king of Sodom comes out. Now, I just call this guy the king of wickedness, okay? Sodom, wicked city, he's the king of wickedness, okay? You got the king of wickedness coming out, right? That was the reputation of his city. And here comes another guy, Melchizedek. Melchizedek's name means king of righteousness. (laughs) Did you catch that? The king of wickedness and the king of righteousness... Go into a bar, right? We've got, we got to start. The king of righteousness and the king of wickedness come out to meet Noah. Abram, sorry. Abram, thank you for that. Noah's been dead for a little while. Okay. <clears throat> yep, uh, my bad, my bad. <clears throat> All right. And then what happens, right? And then what happens? So the king of Sodom comes out to meet the king of, uh, well, Melchizedek, the king of Salem, right? The king of righteousness comes out to meet him. What does the king of righteousness come out with? Bread and wine. Hmm. That sounds so interesting. What else does the text say? He was a priest of God most high. Well, that's interesting. Considering the Levitical priesthood has not been established yet. A priest is a person who deals as an intermediary between men and God. Right now, Abram has been worshiping God on his own, with building his own altars, worshiping in his own, basically his own sanctuary, worshiping God on his own. God spoke to him, called him. He hasn't needed a priest to talk to God. In fact, As far as we knew, up until this moment, Abram and his family were the only followers of God on the planet at the time. Everybody else had rejected God. Everybody else had walked away from the covenant. We thought Abram and his his family were the only ones that were even worshiping God. He was the, the light remaining in a world of darkness. He was the remnant. He was the chosen people. He was the seed. And oh, this dude Melky shows up. King of righteousness coming out with bread and wine. Who is this guy? And what does this mysterious priest do? He brings out bread and wine and then he speaks a blessing over Abram. In the name of who? God most high. And how does Abram respond? Verse 20, Abram gives a tenth of everything he has. 
There is no legal code yet. There is no law. There is no command or demand to give a tithe, 10% of all that you make. Abram responds intrinsically. Abraham responds naturally. The law, the scripture says later, is written on the human heart. Abram responds, giving a tenth of everything he just got, giving it to this guy, Melchizedek. Listen, brief side note on tithing. We believe, we, we believe in the tithe. We believe in offering up to God at least 10% of everything that we offer. Now listen, for those of you who have never tithed, you've never given, there is freedom. It's, we're not, we're, there is not, it's not a legalistic action that, you know, you better give 10% to the penny. If you can't start with 10%, start with five, work your way up. Some of us covenant, we believe we've been given so much more in Christ. So we respond often far above our tithe. We give our tithe back to the church, back to the, the working of the ministry. We also give into, in our missional communities. We also give with our neighbors. We give far and far and above 20% under the new covenant. One of my fears is because I don't, we don't as a church um, pass the bucket is that some of us will think, oh, then it's not important. Believe me, your, Jesus said, right? Your money shows where your heart is. You can fool yourself. You can lie to yourself and say you want to worship God and that your heart worships God and that you're on this thing 100%. Your pocketbook, your checkbook, your bank statement shows where your heart is. That was Jesus, not me. So one of the things we do is the majority of our church, 80% of, I think, or so of our church, give online through sacredcitychurch.com. We've got a, a box in the back that says giving right there, and you can drop your money in it back there and you can give to God. But I don't want, so many people have been turned off by the church of, of building campaigns and, and building huge, you know, buildings and on millions of dollars. So many of the churches thinks that pastors and preachers are just out for their money. And so I just, I don't even want to deal with that. Not saying that we'll never take an offering. We'll never take, I'm not saying that at all, but this is how we're, this is working for us. This is how it's operating right now. But I don't want you to think that therefore, since we don't put an offering and tithes in a prominent position in our gathering, in the liturgy of our service, that therefore it's not meaningful to us or not important aspect of your discipleship. It is. Giving and how you operate your finances is a discipleship issue. And if you want to wiggle your way out, well, that's under the legal code. I'm sorry, Abram doesn't have the law. He's setting the standard here. 10% before taxes before Uncle Sam gets his peace, first fruits offered to God in worship and in joy. So, as a side note, Abram gives his tithe, a 10% of everything he gets, to this guy named Melchizedek. Now, this, this should, again, we should be like, what the? Because Abram is God's man. He is God's dude, Right? He's been chosen and called and sent out on a mission. God has made his covenant to Abram and Abram's descendants. Why would Abram give, be giving a tithe to God through this guy, Melchizedek? Why would Abram just say, hey, God, here's 10%. Take it. Why would Abram be going through this intermediary? Listen, Melchizedek is a very important dude in our Bible. He shows up basically in 
in three different places. He shows up here. He shows up in Psalm 110. And he shows up in Hebrews 5, 6, and 7. In fact, let's go to Hebrews 7. I didn't give the guys back this, so I don't know if we're going to be on there. But let's go to Hebrews 7 because it's too good. And hey, why not, right? Let's just go there. We like the Bible. We like to study the Bible. Hebrews chapter 7. When you're there, say there. We're going to get a little bit more info on this guy. I think we're going to like it. All right, I'm going to wait. When you're there, say there. All right, come on, dig it there. Hey, I could be a heretic. I could be a liar. I could be making stuff up. I want you in the book. I want you reading it. I want you checking it out for yourself, right? Hebrews chapter 7. All right, here we go. For this Melchizedek, if you didn't know, Hebrews is written several thousand years after the story in Genesis, okay? So this is far after. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, he's a king, priest of the most high God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. We remember that, right? We just read it. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. Look at this. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. Okay. Melchizedek, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem. That is king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy. Hmm. Having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the son of God, he continues a priest forever. So, He is, pause, he is king of righteousness. He is king of peace. He is a priest, even though the priesthood hasn't been established yet. Hmm. Kind of like, sounds like some other guy I know. Let's keep reading. Where does this mysterious priest come from? Says, we don't know who his daddy was. Uh, Genesis has been kind of big on genealogies, right? We've worked through several of them. Who your daddy is, is important part of who you're going to be, right? What seed, what did you, who did you come from? Did you come from the seed, remember? The, did you come from the seed of Seth or the seed of Cain? Who your daddy is very important in a patriarchal society. Genesis, Melchizedek just shows up unannounced, out of nowhere, and Abram's giving him a tithe. His name wasn't mentioned in any of those genealogies. So let me put this in perspective for us. We have a guy with the name King of Righteousness and King of Peace, peace, who is a priest who blesses Abram in the name of God, who doesn't have a beginning or an end, who brings out communion to Abram, and Abram responds with worship through giving him a tenth of everything. Hebrews 7 says that Melchizedek is greater than good old father Abraham. That should cook your noodle. Abram is the man up until this point, right? Let's look at Hebrews seven fifteen through 17. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order 
of Melchizedek. That's a direct quote from Psalm 110. So I've built this up, I think, pretty good, that we're probably uh, picking, picking this up and wondering, so is Melchizedek Jesus? Is, Mel, is Melchizedek Jesus? Now, I'm just going to tell you, many people think that he is. They believe this to be a Christophany, an appearance of the pre-incarnate Jesus. Personally, I am not so sure. What we do know for sure is that Melchizedek is either Jesus or a type and a sign of Jesus. I believe it is a type and a sign of Jesus. Melchizedek is meant to point us to Jesus. 2,000 years before Jesus is born, I might add, that's for sure. So we have Jesus or his stunt double making a cameo in Genesis 14. This is just absolutely fascinating to me. But like I said, Melchizedek, we're going to jump off in here. Melchizedek is not the only king present. He's not the only king present right here. We've still got this, sorry, we've still got this king of Sodom or the king of wickedness that I like to call him. We've still got him to deal with. All right. So I want us to look at the juxtaposition of this guy's attitude with that of Melchizedek. Verse 21. Oops, back in, back in, uh, we're back at Genesis 14. Verse 21. So Abram gives a tenth of everything. Verse 21. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but, but, but take the goods for yourself. <laughs> now listen, do we know who this king is? The king of Sodom, right? The king what? Let's put this in perspective here. This king just got whooped and carried off into captivity. Abram and his entourage went and rescued this king, saved his butt, brought him back alive, kicking, breathing, you know, able to live on. And how does the king of Sodom respond and react to Abram? He starts off his, his conversation with Abram by making demands. Hey, give me, give me. What? Are you kidding me? We should see this juxtaposition here. The king of righteousness blesses and breaks bread and shares wine, while the king of wickedness makes demands. And how does Abram respond? Abram says, verse 22, But Abram said to the king of Sodom, Go on, boy. Abram, go on, boy. This Abram, right, who was afraid of the Egyptians, this Abram who pimped out his wife because he didn't want to be killed, He now stands up to another king, a king of Sodom, and he says this. I have lifted my hand to the Lord God, most high, possessor of heaven and earth. He's basically repeating what Melchizedek said. That I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you would say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten. And the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshel, and Mamre take their share. So how does Abram respond? 
I have lifted my hand to the Most High God. This victory belonged to God. This victory was His, not mine. This plunder is God's, not mine. This stuff that was given to me, you think it was given to me by you, King of Wickedness. I'm sorry, it was not. I want you to know that God has made me rich, not you. Abram's hands are now open. He is holding his wealth and his material possessions loosely, knowing that they all belong to God and they are simply on loan to him for a season. Oh, that we could feel the same way. Oh, that we could keep an open hand with our resources. I want you to see this. Abram passes another test. And this one, Jesus or his body double is present. Now, this text is so interesting. Again, Bible nerds, Bible geeks unite around this text. We can argue for days about this text. We can go into a lot of detail around this text. But I want us to see something here. These two kings, the king of wickedness, the king of Sodom, the king of righteousness, Melchizedek, they really represent the two kingdoms at work in our world. The two kingdoms that were foretold in Genesis 3, the kingdom of God and Jesus versus the kingdom of Satan. Jesus' kingdom is ruled by a victorious king who is gracious and he blesses his people. It's a kingdom marked by bread and wine. The shed blood and broken body of Jesus Christ given to save his people from their sin and from their shame. Jesus is our king, but he's also our eternal priest who stands before the throne of God. Reminding God of the one eternal offering that Jesus gave his very life, the perfect, spotless lamb of God. Jesus, is a, his kingdom is a kingdom where God owns everything. All that we have is rightfully his, but he is graciously, he graciously lets us keep 90% of his stuff while worshiping him with the other 10%. Have you ever thought of it that way? He is so gracious, he lets you use and keep and call your own 90% of the things that you have. And he asks for 10% to be offered back. To worship. He is so gracious. But there's another kingdom in this story. See, Satan's kingdom is ultimately powerless. It's wicked, presumptuous, and demanding. He claims what isn't his to claim, and he promises things that he can't deliver. The king of Salem wants Abram to take the credit for the victory and make a deal with him over how to keep the plunder. How presumptuous. King of Sodom, hey, Abram, all that, you know, all that, half this, you know, this stuff, that was in my house. You realize, like, this is my stuff, and, and, and you're rich, but it's, 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 you know, it's because of me. Powerless king making demands and claims upon things that he has no right to. wants to make a deal with him. Listen to this. God's promise to Abram, I will make your name great. 
I will multiply your seed. Through your seed, basically, redemption of the whole world is coming. And now we have a king of Salem. Hey, it's because of me. Give me back a little bit of mine. I'll let you keep what's yours. Reminds me of Satan and Jesus in the desert. Jesus takes him up to the high point of the city, looks over, I'll give you everything. Some of us think, why would, Jesus already owns everything. Why would that even be a temptation? Because he's promising him everything without a cross. We know that wasn't Satan's to give. He didn't own it. God owns it. But he's, prom- he's promising Jesus a kingdom without a cross. That's what the king of Sodom is trying to work and scheme and maneuver, partner and side with Abram, get him on his side. There's great sacrifice coming, Abram. Let's take the easy way out. But Abram is a man who has been changed by God. He's not a religious man. He's not a moralistic man. He's not a man who started coming to church to get his kids to act right. He's not a man that tries to appease his wife and just shows up on a Sunday morning just to make her happy. He's a man whose heart and affections have been changed and shaped by the Most High God. The gospel has taken root in his heart. He knows that, Abram knows that in himself, he deserves nothing but death. Everything has been given as a gracious gift from the hand of a mighty God. God has chosen him. God has blessed him. God has sent him on a mission. And now God has sent a better priest and a better king into his life to bless him and break bread with him and to remind him that God himself will use Abram to make everything right again. Eternal redemption coming. There's something better coming, Abram. Separate from the king of Sodom. Side with the king of righteousness. People often ask me, do you think Abram had any idea what was coming? Do you think he knew about Jesus and the new covenant? Do you think he knew that? Of course he did. Absolutely he did. Now, he didn't get to see it as clearly as we do because we stand on the other side of the cross. We look back in history at the cross, at Jesus' incarnation, him becoming a man and walking the earth and living the perfect life that all of us fail to live. We stand on the other side of the cross so we have a new clarity. But Abram, 2,000 years, he's looking down the halls of history. He's believing in the covenant. He's believing in the promise of God. Abram, I would think if Abram should be shocked right here. If it's me and I'm the dude, right? I am God's man. God is speaking to me audibly. Some guy shows up, wants to break bread with me. And then, all you know, blessing me. I'm like, who is this joker? I am God's man. You get behind me. Right? I'm kind of leading this thing. They're going to call me Father Abraham. Right? Melchizedek, nobody's even going to, how, they ain't going to be able to pronounce your name. But we see him respond humbly to this guy. He receives 
communion. He receives the bread and the wine. He receives the blessing. And he offers up a tenth of everything that he has. This is a supernatural encounter with Jesus in some form. Either a type, a sign, or the pre-incarnate Christ. 2,000 years before Jesus was born, we have the king of righteousness bringing out bread and wine for Abram. Every time we see bread and wine in Scripture, we should think about Jesus. See, I want want you to hear this. Abram puts his life on the line to save his stupid nephew, Lot. And Abram was victorious. What a story. But Jesus, he puts his life on the line to save us, his stupid brothers and sisters, right? And he dies. Jesus doesn't come back victorious with the spoils of war. Jesus gives up everything. It cost, it cost Abram the threat of violence. It cost Abram the threat of his life and limb and bloodshed. But it actually cost Jesus his life. Abram's life and family were spared because Jesus' life would be broken and his blood would be spilled. Abram is pointing us. Melchizedek is pointing us. This whole thrust of this section of Scripture is pointing us to Jesus Christ. It's pointing us to redemption. God gave Abram communion. Before the Passover. Before the Last Supper. Before Jesus' death and resurrection. I want us to see this, man. The story of God is steaming full speed ahead towards this one epic moment in time. The moment where God dies for sinners. The story is, I mean, it's meant to get to us get right here in verse or in chapter 14 to get caught up in this stream that's moving in one direction. God will send his son to live the perfect life and die the substitutionary death for us in our place on our behalf. This is how we read our Bible. We are on the other side of the cross. We look back and we can see Jesus through the whole thing. Listen, communion, that's what we take part in this morning. Communion is meant to point us to the only way a person can be saved. The only way a person can be in right relationship with God. Listen, In this story, guys, we're not Abram. We're not Melchizedek. We're Lot. We've been taken away. We've been pulled off into captivity. We are prisoners. We are slaves. I'm not a slave. I'm free. Really? Stop sinning then. 
Good luck with that. We are slaves. Man, you're about to find out you're a slave. What's going to happen on Thanksgiving? Mm Mm-hmm. That pumpkin pie, you can't pass it up. You've been on a diet, but it don't matter. There's caramel drizzled on that. See them pecans? Mm Mm-hmm. Slave. Mm Mm-hmm. We're a slave. We've been carried off. God. What? Listen. What does Lot do to save himself? Does Lot write home to Uncle Abe? Uncle Abe, I've really reformed myself. I've cleaned up my act. I know I was kind of living in Sodom and doing some bad things. Please come rescue me. Absolutely. Lot is powerless. Lot does nothing. Lot is in need and desperate need of redemption. We are Lot in this story. We need the redemption of God. We cannot save ourselves. You can clean up your act. You can get moral. You can find God and find religion and try to be a nice person and try to deal ethically. You can try to do all these things, but you will still be a slave. We absolutely 100% need redemption. We need the obedience of another. We need another savior to come marching into our city and rescue us and bring us out. And that is Jesus. The only one who can rescue us from our sins. The only one who can redeem us. And communion points to that. Points back to that. It's already happened. We the only way Lot could rescue himself, and this is just an analogy here, the only way that Lot could rescue himself, if he, if he was perfect, the only way we can get out, guys, the only way we can get back to God, the only day, one day we're going to stand before the judgment seat of God, a holy and just God who doesn't grade on a curve. The God who tells the sun to rise every day and tells it to have its intensity and have its heat. That God will stand before that God one day. And perfect, perfect is the only standard. And you can either try that on your own and fail miserably, or you can accept the perfection that Christ did and performed and lived on our behalf and now through the cross and through faith will gift us that. You can accept that and receive that by faith and then you will stand before the judgment seat of God and he will look at you and see Jesus Christ. He will see the righteousness of God. He will see perfection. We need to be perfect as God is perfect and the only way that can happen is if we receive a righteousness that is alien to us. It's outside of us. And that is offered to every one of us in this room that's offered today the righteousness by faith. Jesus lived the perfect life and he died our death so that we could be made brothers and sisters and sons and daughters of the Most High God. Jesus marched into the city of wickedness and rescued us out of the hands of of our enemy of our soul. I'm so thankful that Lot, that I get to be Lot in this story. 
What did I contribute to my salvation? Lots in the back of a chariot. Oh, man. Nothing rescued by the hands of the Almighty God. So says my soul. Rescued by the hands of an Almighty God. Jesus, I thank you. And I believe it to be true that we are great sinners, but you are even greater Savior. And then you march into our cities and you rescue us. And I pray that much would be made of you, of your sacrifice, of your gospel, of your name today. That as we take part like Abram in communion, he was looking forward to a Savior. And now we're looking backwards at a Savior. But like Abram, Father, we are waiting. We're in a time of waiting. We're waiting for Christ to come back again. And we say, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Renew, make all things new again. Make all things new. The broken, the boring, the stained, the marred, the crushed, the perplexed. Make it all new and receive glory today. This is for your name and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.